Well, last week I was going through a list and I didn't finish it. And then a number of you um, came up to me and were encouraged uh, with the message. So I thought, well, let's come back and finish the list. I trust that you were sincere in telling me that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have come back. But um, we're working through a list on uh, what are the signs of true salvation? What are the evidences of true salvation? And uh, we're launching our thoughts from Matthew 7. So if you want to take your Bible and turn there. Matthew chapter 7, perhaps uh, one of the most terrifying verses of all of Scripture. Jesus here, and this is well known, but Jesus here is saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now again, as I said, these are familiar words. We know this verse. It's terrifying. It's the tragedy of tragedies to think that you're at the gate of heaven only to nosedive into hell by the Lord of Lords himself. But as you can see, this is Judgment Day. He says on that day, and Jesus is facing a a large group of people. He says many. You see that there. And for them, they are ready to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think they believe they're they're about to go in. They got their so-called ticket. Um... I think they believe they're about to be counted among the sheep, not the goats. I think they believe they are righteous. I think they believe that they are the children of God, that they are the true followers of Jesus. Uh, Even look at Jesus and they say to him, Lord, Lord. In other words, they're standing before Jesus, self-confident, self-assured, brazen, and quite certain. They, they even brought their own credentials. They, they brought the resume of uh, all the stuff that they have done in his name. Notice three times, in his name. In your name, in your name, in your name. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name. And, and in a sense, what they're saying is we did it for you, Jesus. You understand that. All that religious stuff, we did it. All for you. And Jesus, of course, responds how? I never knew you. Depart from me. The last things they ever heard. Depart there, just so you know, is present imperative, which indicates the commanded separation is forever. Ever. You take a step back, and again, we're just reviewing all this. You, 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 it's absolutely amazing, thinking they were going to heaven only to be denied access. I, I, I can't think of anything other uh, that's worse than that. There's no entrance for them, no heaven for them, no eternal life for them, just a departing into outer darkness and eternal judgment. Spurgeon called this a nameless woe. 
And by the way, just, just so you see the flow of the text here, all of this connects to what goes before and what follows. I know we're just jumping in here at verse 21. But if you go back up to verse 13, notice the flow here. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many, there's that word, who go through it. Verse 14, how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few that find it. That's a call to wisdom. You could even say it's a wisdom. Uh, not, uh, sorry, uh, a warning. And, and then after verse 14, here comes another warning and the warning about false prophets and to those who follow them. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. And that's key. Make a note of that. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. And thus, the, the, the subject of fruit leads into the discussion of what we have here, what are the so-called signs of someone who enters the kingdom of heaven, you look at their fruit. You look at the fruit. As we read in 1 John, the, the fruit of those who are the children of God and the children of the devil are what? Are obvious. Or they should be obvious. So you come into our text, what is the fruit? The fruit is doing the what? The will of the Father. That's what he says. You didn't do the will of the Father, and thus you didn't produce fruit. The will of the Father is to bear much fruit. And again, as I say, this is a warning. I mean, it was a warning on this day, and it's a warning today. It's a cry to have wisdom, not to be deceived. He basically says that in verse 24. He says, everyone who hears... And by the way, you see the therefore, the therefore connects you back up to verse 21, 20 through 23, perhaps all the way back up to verse 13. But the therefore, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And we'll just stop there. But as I said, this is this is a, a warning and a call for wisdom. So in reality, you look at these people and you can say, well, you could almost get there but come up short, right? You could almost get to heaven and not get in. You could spend your whole life in church doing religious things and come to find out that it was all a waste of time. In fact, it's perhaps more damning if you never did any of that. Some of you might be familiar with the Puritan Matthew Mead. He wrote a book on this very subject. that The title was The Almost Christian Discovered. The Almost Christian Discovered. And he subtitled it The False Professor Tried. Because this was an issue in the Puritan days. This is an issue in every day of trying to sort out who are the sheep and who are the, the, the goats because the, the goats get deceived to thinking that they're sheep. And so you've got to assure the sheep and expose the hypocrisy. And so Matthew Mead, in his way, uh, was doing this in his book, The Almost Christian Discovered. And he gives a list. He gives a list of those things that someone might have, call them even a, 
call themselves a Christian, quote unquote, but still not be a Christian. I'm not going to give you the full list, but I'll just give you a, an idea of what he was saying. He said, number one, a man may have much knowledge and yet be almost a Christian. And that's true. I, I've got professors at university, and I know professors in other universities who have a lot of knowledge. Probably have more knowledge than I do in Greek and Hebrew and the history of the Bible. But I don't believe a, a word of it. Number two, he says, a man may have great and eminent gifts and yet be almost a Christian. Don't equate gifts with salvation. Number three, a man may have a high profession of religion. He may have much external, uh, be much in external duties of godliness and yet be almost a Christian. You, you can play the game, he, is what he's saying here. You can go around saying that, you know, you, you love, you love, you love, and then uh, live a, a life of, of shame and then be exposed to never have religion to begin with. A man may go far in opposing his sin and yet be almost a Christian. A man may hate sin and yet be almost a Christian. A man may take great vows and promises, strong purposes and resolutions against sin and yet be almost a Christian. A man may maintain a strife and combat against sin and yet be almost a Christian. A man may be a member of a Christian church and yet be almost a Christian. A man may have great hopes of heaven and yet be almost a Christian. man may be under visible changes and yet be almost a Christian. A man may be very zealous in matters of religion and yet be almost a Christian. A man may have a love to the people of God and yet may be almost a Christian. A man may do all the external duties in worship which a Christian can do and yet be almost a Christian. I'll stop there. Now, I'm just, I'm just giving you the headings. If you go read the book, he gives you the explanations behind all of that. But what he's saying and what I'm saying and what is true is that this is the many in our churches today. They may have all of these or may have a few of these. But the point is, it, it, that in themselves doesn't make you a Christian. So we come back to our text. You, you understand this is the tragedy of tragedies. In a word, to be self-deceived. I mean, false teachers can deceive you, but at the end of the day, you are deceiving yourself. Self-deception, self-deluded. I remember when I was at university, I was working at a bank during the during my studies, I was working in L.A. In fact, if you want to get specific, I was working in Venice. Many of you heard of Venice Beach, and I was working for the bank there in Venice Beach. And there was a particular customer that would come in every afternoon to deposit his money. He was a, had his own business, so at the end of the day, he would collect whatever he made and come in and put it in the bank. And Well, this one day he came in, and he, he had this red handkerchief. I wouldn't call it a blanket, but this, you know, this red handkerchief. And he was all skipping as we're all happy. And he came in and he says, I would like to, um, I, I would like to take out $10,000. 
Yeah, I want to withdraw $10,000. Now, in this, I don't know if here, but here in the States, you take out $10,000 or more, you have to fill out a bunch of paperwork with the IRS. You understand, Mr. So-and-so, you've got to withdraw the money, yes? When you withdraw the money, you've got to fill out the paperwork, yes? Yeah, I need the $10,000. I need it quickly. Come on, come on. Are you okay? I mean, who takes out $10,000? So we're, we're kind of concerned for him. I mean, is there somebody in the parking lot holding a gun to his wife's head, et cetera, et cetera? No, no, everything's good. We, I just need the $10,000. I need the $10,000 right away. Okay, we do the paperwork. We pull out the $10,000. We give it to him. He quickly wraps it in this red handkerchief and walks out the door. Five, maybe ten minutes later, he comes running into the bank, screaming his head off. I've been robbed! I've been robbed! I've been robbed! Well, long story short, somebody came to his door promising him that this was a heavenly handkerchief and that if he put $10,000 in this red heavenly handkerchief, that the Lord would double it. And he bought it. Well, of course, you know what happens. He walks out the door. He shows the handkerchief to this deceiver, and the deceiver says, thank you very much, and takes off. $10,000 gone within 10 minutes. I mean, you, you, you're like me. You think, how, how can anybody be that stupid? The point is, how can anybody be that deceived? Of course, what you have here is far worse, obviously. This is an internal Deception. You think you know Jesus, but he says to you, I never knew you. Depart from me. Tom Askell, Baptist pastor, puts it this way. Self-deception is an insidious condition. You will never meet a person who knows he is self-deceived. By definition, those ensnared are completely unaware that they are deceived. End quote. So just so we're clear here, what's the deception? What's the deception? The, the deception is that doing all this religious stuff, and I'm just going to call it stuff. You can call it ticking the boxes, external duties, whatever you want to call it. Doing all this religious stuff they believe was going to get them into heaven instead of what? Doing the will of God. That, that's, that's the difference. This religious stuff versus doing the will of God. And how does Jesus put the will of God? Because he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You didn't do the will of God. Well, what's the will of God? Well, in fact, let me put it positive first. He says, those who enter the heaven are those who do the will of my Father. But then the flip side of that, who are those who do the will of my Father? He puts it as what? You who, what? Practice lawlessness. Now flip that around, just so we're clear. Doing the will of my Father equals what? Being lawful, being obedient. 
Obedience. Not doing the will of my Father is what? Do disobedience or lawlessness. So, again, instead of practicing lawlessness, you practice what? Lawfulness. You're doing the law. But the question then comes, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does lawfulness look like? What does obedience look like? What is, okay, using Jesus' word, what does doing the will of the Father look like? Well, we began kind of unpacking that last week, and I want to continue doing that today, is well, what does that look like? I mean, we can singularly and, and, and succinctly bring it down to the characteristic of someone who is a real Christian is by obedience, obedience to God's law, but then we can expand that and make it look like in a number of different ways because the Bible describes it in a number of different ways. What does that look like? Well, I gave you ten things last week. Let me pick it up right where we left off with number 11. What does doing the will of God's, uh, Jesus' Father look like? So if you're taking notes, here's number 11. We'll see how far we get with this. Number 11, I, I call it persisting in the means of grace. If, if you're a true believer, one of the evidences of salvation is that you're going to persist in the means of grace. Persisting in the means of grace. Another way of putting this is a true believer will be persisting in the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. Now, the, the key text, of course, is 1 Timothy 4.7. I, I do want you to, to turn there real quick. I'm not going to have you turn to every text that I give you, but I, I want you to see this. 1 Timothy 4.7. This is the key text, of course, when we're talking about the means of grace, when we're talking about disciplining yourself. 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul here tells Timothy, but stay away, or you might have a void, from worthless stories that are typical of old men, endless genealogies, fables, myths, whatever you have there. Rather, discipline yourself but there's a purpose, and the purpose is for godliness. You show me a true Christian, I'll show you someone who's eager to discipline themselves for godliness because they understand that the purpose of salvation was for them to be godlike, which is where godliness comes from. Godliness comes from godlikeness. Your desire is to be like God. God, not in the sense of being divine, but being like Him in His character, being Him, being like holy and pure. I mean, the word itself, godliness, has the idea of someone who wants to show reverence to God, show piety towards God. Piety is an old Puritan word, but we probably should resurrect that word. The word discipline it comes from the, the word gymnazo, where we get our word gymnasium. So you're disciplining yourself, you're training yourself. How, how many people here go to the gym? How many here should go to the gym? Anyway, 
we, you go to the gym, and when you go to the gym, you walk in, there's treadmills, there's bikes, there's rowing machines, there's dumbbells, there's all, all kinds of machines. In other words, there's, there's something in here for every part of your body, right? You want to work your, your biceps, your triceps, your legs, your, your, your quads, your um, calves, uh, chest. There's a machine everywhere in here to, for you to work out in. Spiritually, it's the same thing. When we talk about the means of grace or the disciplines of grace, what we're saying is that God has given us a gym to walk into and there's tons of equipment there for you to work out in. You say, what what are the spiritual equipment, so to speak? Well, the first thing you can think of is what? Bible reading, meditation. Faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the Word of God. You, you can't grow in your godliness unless you come face-to-face with God. You come face-to-face with God. You come face-to-face with Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture. And, of course, on the heels of that is what? Prayer. On the heels of that is church commitment and church worship. Discipleship. Evangelism. I mean, there's a number of means of grace. And the point here is that true salvation, evidences of salvation, is that there's a persistence there of wanting to be godly and thus you exercise in being and disciplining yourself to be godly. Does that make sense? And by way of a footnote, I'll, I'll just say that just like the physical gym, you're never going to get into the physical gym unless there's some self-control, right? Unless you kind of grab a hold of yourself and say, you know what, I, I need to get there. I understand that the alarm rolls, uh, goes off and you look at it and you think, uh, snooze, and then snooze, and then snooze, and like, oh, I worked out yesterday, I don't need to work out today, Right? You, you just start making all the excuses up and you never get there. And it's kind of the same way spiritually. All of us need some self-control. Go over to Titus. Just to, I, I just need, because this has been on my mind for a little bit, I need you to see this. Because we're talking about persisting in the means of grace and persisting means dis- disciplining yourself. And if you're going to discipline yourself, you need some self-control. Right? Titus 1.8, an elder is to be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-control. So, okay, the elder needs to be self-controlled. That seems to be obvious. Mm, but others, go down to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Older men, older men are to be what? Self-controlled. Go down to Titus 2.5. Older women are to teach the younger women to be what? self-controlled. So the younger women need to be self-controlled, but that's on the assumption that the older women are self-controlled because that's what they're teaching them. What about the younger men? Oh, boy, they need self-control. Titus 2, 6, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. So the whole church needs some self-control. You say, oh, that's just just the the, the church there in Crete. I mean, those Cretans. And that's why Paul's telling time. That's for everybody. Because everybody needs some self-control. Because listen, if you are serious about your Christian life, if you're serious about pursuing godliness, you're going to have to get a hold of yourself. 
And the way you, the way you get a hold of yourself is get some self-control. I mean, you go back to, to Timothy real quick. You notice there in, in, in 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. But, but notice, he, he, he gives you some encouragement that stay away from worthless stories that are typical of old men, but rather discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He goes, I know you can get caught up with all the stuff of the world. I know there are so many obstacles in your, in your life where you won't pursue discipline. So not only get a hold of yourself, get rid of some stuff. Does that make sense? Now, I know we're not talking about stories you know, old women today, but you, you put in there whatever you want to put in there that kind of becomes an obstacle for you disciplining yourself. I mean, we love watching our TV and we love watching our movies, love listening to music, and we, we, we love going to birthday parties on, on Sundays when we should be at church. And there's, there's so many things that keep us away from the means of grace. And you need to get a hold of yourself and get rid of that stuff. And I'm not saying watching TV and movies and, uh, and listening to music is a bad thing. I'm just saying get, make sure you get your priorities sorted, right? Get your priorities sorted. This is evidence. This is how we know that the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. That's what I'm saying. I mean, Paul, Paul understood this. Don't turn there. First Corinthians 9, you know the verse. Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control and everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown. I mean, we know the athletes are very self-controlled and self-disciplined. We know that. We know the Olympians. They don't get to the Olympics by just rolling out of bed and thinking, I'm going to run a marathon today. Paul understood that. And so he himself says, so I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control. You might have buffet, right? I buffet my body. Self-control brings self-discipline. Now, we've got to keep moving, but I just want to make sure you get this point. Let me break it down for you. One, you've been saved for a prize, right? You have been saved and that, and that prize, that eternal prize of one day becoming like Jesus Christ, transformed, transfigured into His image. But that eternal prize is also an earthly goal. And that's to be like Christ in time, which is to pursue godliness. And thus the question is, well, how, how does that happen? What are the, the means of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ? Well, the answer to that is disciplining or persisting in those means of grace, persisting in the spiritual disciplines that God has given us. Self-control, self-discipline, all for the purpose of godliness. Does that make sense? Are we clear? Moving on, number 12. Number 12. And, and this list, by the way, I gave you from last week and today, I, it's just I randomly, there's no real order. 
because when we come to number 12, it's peacefully resting in the promises of God. That's what I have here. Peacefully resting in the promises of God. That doesn't mean that we are perfect in that, because we're, we're not. But characteristically, over time, as a pattern, we will learn as a Christian, to peacefully rest in the promises of God, that we and we alone will experience that peace that surpasses all comprehension, that we will have that joy inexpressible, that we will have that rare jewel of Christian contentment that the world doesn't know. And what's the basis for that? How does that happen? Well, certainly it's the Spirit of God in us, but it's the Spirit of God with the promises of God. You know, Jesus uh, knew that his sheep were going to be anxious. Remember in Matthew 6, 25 to 24, three times he says, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. Three times. He's talking to Christians there. He's talking to his disciples. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. There's a lot of reasons to be anxious. I get that. He says, do not be anxious for your life. Now, remember in the context that he was talking about, you could be anxious for security. You could be anxious for food. You could be anxious for for clothing. I don't think we're anxious for security, clothing, and food. We do pretty well with that today. But there's a lot of other things today that we can be anxious for. Well, it's the same solution. Do not be anxious. Anxious. And you know the word anxious has the idea of being double-minded. Anxious is, is, is the, the, the Greek word means you look at this way and you look at that way. And you, and you know when you look at this way and you look at that way, you're not looking at anything. And you know when you're anxious, you're not thinking. When you're anxious, you're like, I, I, I can't think. I can't. Don't talk to me. Well, that's, that's behind the word. What's the solution? Well, you rest in the promises of God. You rest in the promise of of God that he will never leave you nor forsake you. You rest in the promise of God that he's wise and benevolent, that he knows what's best for you. You, 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 You're with David there. I mean, if you were here last Sunday night, we went through Psalm 23, and you're there with David that says what? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Literally, I lack nothing. I'm a happy and content sheep. I'm not anxious for anything because he's my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters and green pastures. He feeds me off of his grass and he takes me to still waters where that's a picture of rest, isn't it? Not stormy waters, still waters. But how does he lead me? He leads me by his promises. I think I said last week, Whatever providences you're going through, whatever trouble you're going through, we're not minimizing them. But, but you, you, you need to understand that if you're trying to interpret those providences out there and, and interpreting them whether God's um, wise or not, whether God knows what he's doing or not, whether God's word is accurate or not, you're trying to interpret life through with those questions, don't do that. Providences come and go. 
You can be anxious for, for, for a moment uh, or for a, or a while, and then the thing at the end solves itself. And how many times have you thought, why did I get anxious? There was, I just wasted a whole bunch of mental energy for nothing because the thing was, was nothing. There was a solution in the end. My point is, this is true. The sure word is true. This is what you believe in. You don't necessarily interpret the providences. And that goes back to my point. You're peacefully resting, not in the providences of God, but you're peacefully resting in the promises of God. Do you know Isaiah 26.3? You need to memorize this. That steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. You have that marked? Let me say that again. Isaiah 26.3. The steadfast, the steadfast, not the wavering, not the double-minded, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. There's a peace there. Why? Because he trusts in you. There's a steadfast of mind there. And the result? Perfect peace. Perfect peace. Look that up. We've got to keep moving. Here's another evidence. I just jotted this one down as well. Here's another sign of a true believer. And, and this surely is in response to what Jesus says here in Matthew 7. But it's perceiving truth from error. You catch that? How do you know a true Christian from a false Christian? Well, a true Christian will be able to discern truth from error. Right? There, there's a discernment. We're called to be discerning. We're, we're called to test the spirits. And what do we use to test the spirits? Well, the only thing God has given us as the objective word to test. We don't, we don't test things based on experience. We don't base it on stories. We, we base it on the word of God. How, how, do we, how do we distinguish dogs and pigs, right? A little bit later, he tells us to, or actually up above, he tells us to, you know, not throwing pearls, but, you know, uh, in front of swines and dogs. How do we know that we're not casting discernment? How do we know how to beware of false prophets? Well, discernment. And where does that discernment come? The Word of God. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and follow me. Well, where are you going to hear God's voice? Where are you going to hear the, the shepherd's voice? You can hear it in the Word of God. We test everything by the Word of God, right? I know you know that, so we can keep moving on. Here's, here's another one, number 14. I, 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 I know we go up and down with this, and I, I can confess to this as well, but as a, as a pattern, there should be a passionate zeal amongst Christians. There should be a zealousness. I mean, we're called to zealousness. We're called to, Paul tells us to be zealous for good works. We should be passionate for all things godly, all things righteous. 
All things holy. The opposite, of course, is apathy, right? I know we get apathetic at times, we get copacetic at times, but overall a Christian should be the most passionate people on the planet, but we're passionate about the, the right things, of course, and that's the, the godly things. There should be a zeal where we contend for the truth and we hate evil. I don't know if you know this, but zealousness actually comes out of jealousness. Biblically, if you look up the words, both in the Old Testament and the, in the New Testament, when you're jealous for something, if you're jealous for the righteousness of God, if you're jealous for the holiness of God, you're going to be zealous for Him. Does that make sense? You understand God is zealous for us, right? God is zealous for us, so we need to be zealous for Him. There should be a fire in our bones. Remember, Jesus says, I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold, but you're lukewarm. And I can't do anything with lukewarmness. I'm going to spit you out. Be hot and be cold. Because both are useful. Hot water is useful. Cold water is useful. But lukewarm, I can't do anything with you. Christians should not be marked by lukewarmness. This is why we cry out and pray for what? Revival. We need some reviving. Because we're slouching at the moment. We're apathetic at the moment. All of us. When I say all of us, I'm, I'm talking about the church. Maybe us as well, but the church at large. On the heels of that, number 15, there, there should be presence, a, a presence of holy affections. So if you're going to be zealous, it's going to show up. And where is it going to show up? It's going to show up where you're going to manifest holy uh, affections. And that's, of course, in contrast to unholy affections or pseudo-affections. I mean, this is where many are deceived. This is where many are deceived. Many take their assurance from certain feelings or certain moods, I mean, normally produced by music or an inspiring message, some external act they engaged in. And so at the end of the day, they, they believe that they're Christians primarily based on their experience. Now, we all have experiences. But what are the tests of a true experience? Well, you look at your life. If, and if you have the Spirit of God in you, those holy affections are going to be what? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and thankfulness and self-control. Those holy affections are going to be manifested by the Spirit of God. Those are the true affections. Paul says in Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, here it is, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In other words, you should be having a beatitude attitude. Right? The presence of holy Affections. Now, let me pull one of those fruit of the Spirit out and, and make it, it a point in and of itself. And this is number 16. 
gratitude, thankfulness. The mark of a true believer is that there is a perspective of gratitude, a perspective of thankfulness. You know, when Jesus says, you know, this is, you, you don't do the will of my Father in heaven, I, I thought to myself, well, what is the will? Now, now, in the context, as we said, it's obedience, but if you were to just pull that statement out and look at Scripture, there's a number of places where it's, this is the will of God, this is the will of God, right? And some of you are familiar with this. The will of God is uh, that you're saved. The will of God is that you are sanctified. It's the will of God that you suffer. It's the will of God that you serve. And what's the fifth one? The will of God that you say thanks. They're all S's to, to help you remember them, right? There, those are specific verses in the New Testament where it says this is the will of God. This is the will of God. This is the will of God. The will of God is for you to have a... Attitude of gratitude. In fact, Paul says this in Romans 1. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. The non-Christian doesn't even honor God nor give him thanks. I was reading a, a commentary the other day from John Calvin and Job, one of his, one of John, not commentary, sermons, one of John Calvin's sermons on Job. And I don't know how many times he, he said, well, that's not us because we say thanks. That's not us because we say thanks. And that's not us because we say thanks. And I'm saying, well, he's on to something here. And you look at the Apostle Paul and you read his, his letters. There's always, he, he infuses thanksgiving in everything that he, he, he says because he's, he's overwhelmed. The chief of, of sinners has been saved and he's He's thankful. First Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in everything for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And we understand that ingratitude is ugly. Some of you have kids, right? And you, you, one of the things you teach them throughout the years is to be thankful. Did you say thanks? Did you thank grandma? Did you thank them? I mean, how many of us Give God thanks for everything. I know we give thanks for the food when we eat, but is there a spirit of thankfulness throughout the day? That's a mark of a Christian. Because thankfulness will stop you from doing things, right? Having, having a mindset of thankfulness will, will be that, that, that armor, as it were, so you don't fall into temptation. I can't do that. I can't do that. Look, look at what God has given me. Look what God's done for me. Number 17. I've just got two more. I think I can finish this. Number 17. And, and this actually goes back to the Bible reading. And that is a, a preeminence of love in your life. Jesus said... They will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. Love. Love. Love for God. Love for His Son. Love for the Holy Spirit, for that matter. Love for His law. Love for His word. Love for His truth. Love for His people. Love for the lost. I mean, one of the things we probably need to ask, and we, we did ask it, I noticed, went back on, on 
the, the, the sermons preached, because I thought about bringing this up again, but um, one of the questions we probably need to ask over and over again is, well, what is love? Do, do we really know what is love? We, we're called and commanded to love, but do we know what love is? Because the, the culture out there, society tells us what? Love is love. Not true. Biblically, love is not love. There's a number of words that describe what true love is. When, 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 when John, 1 John 3 says, see what great love. He's basically saying, this, this love is out of the world. You, you could actually translate it that in, in, in a literal way. What, what great love is this? This is a love that is uh, out of this world. That's why the, the New Testament had to coin a new word. They came up with the word what? Agape. And all the commands to love is the word agape. So you better know what agape means. If you're in First John, look at verse 18. Little children. Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. There it is. How do you know you're a Christian? What is the evidence of being a Christian? Love. Not with word and ting, tongue only. Tongue, but in deed and truth. And by the way, when he says there in verse 19, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure. That word assure means pacify, soothe, persuade. We have that confidence that we are truly his. So here is a very practical question. How can we assure ourselves that we're Christians? Well, by loving God and loving others. By the Spirit of God, of course. One last one. Number 18. I know you said, you're saying, well, last week you said there were 17. Yeah, I came up with another one this week. Here's number 18. And this is a full circle. We have to do this. Full circle back to where we began. How do we know that we are Christians and not being self-deceived. It's doing the will of the Father. And what's the will of the Father? In a word, it's what? Obedience. Practicing obedience. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and what? Not do what I say. Right? John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Go back to chapter 2, verse 3 here. In First John, this is how we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Verse five, but we who sorry, but whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. There it is. Keep, keep, obey, obey. You come back over to chapter three. Verse 24, the one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. Go over to chapter 5, verse 3. For this is what love for God is, 
to keep His commands. And His commands are not a burden. Down in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. That is to say, doesn't practice sin, right? We still sin. The point is, it's not the perfection, but it's the direction, right? How many times have we said that? It's a practicing sin. But the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. It's obedience. Look at your life. Look at your life. Yes, you come to church. Yes, you come to home group. Uh, yes, you, you know, you might even read your Bible. That, that was what Matthew Mead was getting to. You can engage in all sorts of spiritual stuff. But be a hypocrite with it all. Living a life of, of sinful shame. Is your life marked by obedience. Well, let me give you all 18. Preoccupation with spiritual things, penchant for truth and righteousness, pining for Christ's return, pursuit of holiness, progress in faith and grace, praying and praising, participating in public worship, proclaiming to the lost, pangs of conscience towards sin, persevering through trials and persecution, persisting in the means of grace, peacefully resting in the promises of God, perceiving truth from error, passionate zeal, presence of holy affections, perspective of thankfulness, preeminence of love, and a practice of obedience. And obviously there's a whole bunch more, but we'll stop there. That's, that's enough to look at our lives, to evaluate your our lives to self-examine us so that we're not self-deluded and self-deceived. I mean, you look at that list, the question is, how did you do? How did you do? Can you call yourself a Christian? Do you truly know, know Jesus? Remember Jesus said, I never knew you. Do you know him? Of course, the important question is, does he know you? But do you know him? Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching on this Matthew 7 text, he concluded his exposition on, on Jesus' sobering words with this plea. He says, Judge ye, dear friends, whether ye know Christ or not, and whether Christ knows you. And as you judge yourself, whatever your verdict may be, take this last word of advice. Whether he knows you or not, come to him. Trust in him. Rest in him. I felt as I was thinking over this subject, well, perhaps my Lord does not know me. So I made sure that he should, for I sought him there and then. And I exhort you to do the same. If you fear whether you do not know him, trust him this very moment. Then if you have made a mistake here, there too, and have not really known him, you will begin to know him now. And if you have not, and if you have known him, you will be blessedly renew your acquaintance with him. And the question that has troubled you will disappear. And you will say, yes, Lord, blessed be thy name. I do know thee. 
And thou knowest me, and thou wilt know me forever and ever. May the Lord give each of us this blessing for Jesus' sake. Amen. That is our prayer, Heavenly Father, that each of us in our own hearts, in our own way, will ask that question. This is the eternal question. Do we know Jesus? Does He know us? Could I be called a Christian? A true Christian, a real Christian. Not based on some external duty and religious stuff, some past experience. But now, looking at my life right now, is there a pattern in my life? As I look at these 18 points, is there something there? May we all do a prayerful examination in our hearts now before the Lord. As Spurgeon pleaded his day, we plea in our day. May no one walk away in this hour from this building unless until they have wrestled with that question. Do it for your sake and for Christ's sake. Amen.